I'm kind of surprised by the solidarity we've seen in the writer's strike. Yeah. I don't remember seeing that kind of solidarity in the previous writer's strike. Do you remember? I mean, it's been a long time. I, I wasn't like on Twitter or anything back then, but uh, yeah, the it sounds like maybe the, the Screen Actors Guild and maybe the Directors Guild might join forces with the WGA and maybe do like a three-way strike. You know, the funniest thing I saw was a photo of George R. R. Martin taking part in the writer's strike. And people were talking about how he's been on strike with the uh, Game of Thrones books for about 12 years now. Basically, yeah. I, I mean, he's picked up weird little writing gigs on like video games and stuff. But I heard uh, Elder Ring is awesome. Though. Yeah. And he contributed stuff to that. Um, I've been I've been so deep into the new Legend of Zelda game the past month. Like it's. Oh, how is that? It's fantastic. It's occupying all of my free time. Um it is uh i don't know if i have the patience for that kind of like wide open really wide open game it's so wide open it's like 200 hours basically you can go anywhere that they've doubled or if not tripled the amount of space from the previous game to like walk around in that would drive Um, me nuts like i need something more linear yeah Uh, it is kind of what you make it like you can you don't have to do all the quests you can zip like right along to the end of the story faster than anyone if you want to so it's it's kind of unstructured, but um, I need structure. Damn it! I'm I'm like I'm like today's kids. I need to go from school to like violin lessons, to like soccer practice, to like, <laughs> like some sort of like healthy meal, and then some sort of like homework study group, and then repeat day after day after day. Okay, yeah, maybe it won't be for you then. But yeah. I mean, I, I I we're we're the generation that grew up with like a lot of free time off our hands, and I appreciated that. Because, I don't know, we just thought of stuff to do. Like, we were never bored, to my memory. But anyway, that's like a whole other discussion. Yeah. How did we get from Rider Strike to Legend of Zelda to the halcyon days of our youth? I, d- that's, I don't know. That's the beauty of this podcast, honestly. Because yeah. <laughs> it is so unstructured. It goes off on so many tangents that, I mean, it's partly the only the reason why we only have two listeners <laughs> <laughs> so okay fine let's get back on track um, yeah should we start yeah let's kick it off welcome to the extra buttery podcast It's a show about movies, TV, anything with a story and actors on a screen, really. Join Jason Chan and Robert Snow's free-flowing conversation with deep dives into characters and plot with the occasional salty opinion. So get your popcorn. I got mine right here. Let's start the show! Welcome to the 118th episode of the Extra Buttery Podcast. I am your co-host, Jason Chen in Vancouver. Joining me in Toronto is Robert Snow. Hello, hello. And today we've got a lot of things to sift through. First, we're going to start with Succession, which just ended after four seasons. Then we're going to jump into uh, three movies, uh, Blackberry, Fast X or Fast 10, 
Across the Spider-Verse, the new Sony animated Spider-Man adventure. And then we're going to finish off with the fifth film, Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3. So, Succession. Yeah, Succession. What are the CEO vibes? The kids are not equipped to take on the role. Who's going to fire half that room? Who would we prefer, one of us or one of the old guard? If there's a ring, my hat's in. The negative case would go, you are a clumsy interloper and no one trusts you. The only guy pulling for you is dead. You're just married to the ex-boss's daughter and she doesn't even like you. Jesus, Carl. That's how the naysayers might frame it. Those darn naysayers. I was watching the finale and I was wondering too, like, I I vaguely remember us making... Uh, predictions about who would end up at t- at the top at the end of the show. Yeah, we talked about did like we, what did we say about Tom Wamsgams? Because I don't quite remember. Well, we didn't. We didn't say anything. Because, did we not? Um, I thought we. Did. I don't think so. Okay. I, I I think we we talked about like oh will it be any of the siblings or will it be or will they give the CEO job of Waystar to a non sibling. Which well, we is what happened. Well, we didn't name the non-sibling. I think we thought maybe it could have been Carl. It could have been Frank. It could have been Jerry. Um, Tom was probably pretty far down most people's lists of possibilities. But at the same time, of all the non-family characters, Tom probably made the most sense. Well, yeah, he had ingratiated himself with Lucas Matson. He had um, he had played like that kind of. Uh, willing puppet role for a long time where he mm-hmm. made, made it known to like even when Logan was still around he made it known that like I'll do whatever you want I, I won't I'll be your fall guy you know I'll cover up all of the scandals in the cruise division I'll do this I'll do that and uh, you know he he seemed to I think there was a um, it was like season two or something he, he met a, a, an old hand like a guy who had been running the cruise division and the guy said to him Look, we're the shit eaters. You know, we we uh, take care of all of the dirty business. Uh, we don't question anything. You know, that's our that's our role here. And the look of like fear on Tom's face when he realized what he was getting into in that situation was hilarious. But um, yeah, the guy, the character just kind of made his made his way up doing that exact thing for so long. And meanwhile, fighting with Shiv and, you know, getting pulled into some of the other uh, machinations. But yeah. So uh, I know you love the term inside baseball. Here's a really inside baseball thing for you. So okay, Wamsgams is a it's a really rare German name. Okay, and there historically there is one Wamsgams that kind of caught everyone's attention leading up to finale. Wamsgams was this baseball player back in like even before the Depression era, I think. Okay, and he was known for one thing. And that was turning an unassisted triple play in baseball. And so the theory was that his unassisted triple play was taking out the three Roy siblings. Oh. And that's where the writers got his name from. So uh, does that basically mean that they had this in mind since the very beginning when they named the character? I think so. Hmm. Okay. That's the that's the working theory anyway. And it makes sense. It, it's too good to be a coincidence. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. Well, and we when we were talking about predictions, I mean, we never really landed on anything in particular um, the last time, but because uh, it was so unpredictable, yeah, but, in my opinion. But it, anyway. we did talk about how like there is uh, there's so much irony in the fact that the we've 
sat through like nearly 40 episodes of this show and the ins and outs of which of the siblings will get it or which won't, you know, back and forth, back and forth. But then the great irony is that none of them get it. And that's like the funniest outcome of all. Yeah. Funny for us, but like tragic for them because they not only do they like lose out on this family business in many ways, but then they kind of. If you know, if you were to pick up with those characters later on, you would see just how broken their relationships with each other are. Like, you know, Kendall probably hates Shiv for the rest of his life for what she did to him in that boardroom. Well, he uh, probably hates everyone, but I like all three characters end up being caked in irony, though, right? So, like, Kendall believes he's better than his dad, and in the end, he's worse than his dad because he doesn't get to run the company. Yes. Yeah. Roman tries to be like his dad, but he ends up being like going being who he is, really a playboy. Yeah. Like he was never fit to run anything at all in the first place. No, no. And Shiv was always trying to like upset the patriarchy. And in the end, she becomes like basically uh, a, like a model wife, like a side piece to Tom Wamsgams. Yes. I thought of the three final scenes, the one with the Shiv in the car where she kind of like lightly holds hands with Tom Wamsgams after he offers it. I thought that was the most impressive scene in the series and one of the best endings I've ever seen. Yeah, I agree. There's so much like, you know, um, the director of the episode, uh, Mark Malode, he's um, he's a British guy. He directed The Menu, which we talked about back uh, last year. And he's uh, been a director in Hollywood for a long time. He's directed episodes of Game of Thrones. He said that working with um, Sarah Snook, who plays Shiv. Yeah, she's so um, He says that from all of the observation he's done of the way she works, she is very careful with all of the physical decisions that she makes. So that Mm -hmm. scene you're talking about where she just kind of like, she doesn't really hold Tom's hand. She just, you know, just places her hand kind of there. like sort of like. Yeah, like. It's like kissing Her the fingers ring or are kind of there. Yeah. Yeah. She's like kind of got the claw thing going. It looks like she's a puppet. Yeah. And it's like, you know, that Sarah Snook is a good enough actor that she she thought through what that would mean, like that, that exact kind of placement. So I think that's that's just evidence about what we already know that, you know, uh, this is one of the best performed shows that we've seen in a long time. Best written. Um, and. Yeah, it, it came came through with a really satisfactory ending. So, you know, uh, two things that I also really appreciated. One, Carolina basically telling them to fire Hugo because he's a useless piece yeah. of shit. <laughs> I love that part about Carolina. Like, finally, we get to see the knives come out yeah. from her. Because, like, going into the finale, she was always, like, really straight edge. And I was really, like, curious about her character and what she actually thought. Because it felt like she was the only one who never got to share what she was thinking privately. Yeah, yeah. I didn't expect the murder that Kendall committed in season one or two to come back. I thought we were done with that. But for that to come back and then be the reason for him to be unfit to be CEO, I think makes a lot of sense. I didn't see that coming because I had completely forgotten about that. And a lot of shows just abandon certain like major plot points seasons prior, right? Like how I'm not... Yeah, was it How I Met Your Mother was, like, really guilty of this. Oh. Where, like, the if you looked at the ending and then you go back to the beginning of the show, like, it doesn't make any sense how it ends up. Like, I knew that that had been kind of floating over Kendall for a lot of season three. 
And yeah. he has this big moment with his siblings at the in the finale of season three where he tells them about it and they try their best to console him, but they don't do they yeah, don't yeah. do a very good job because they are who they are. But yeah, but like, dude, he murdered. He did, yeah. Yeah. And they <laughs> How do you console a person and they try, they, you know, they sort of try to make him feel better. But then, it, yeah, you're right. It doesn't get spoken up for the almost the entirety of season four, but it becomes the last chip that he can play because um you know he or that's played against yeah him. they play it against him and then he tries to say oh i was it was just a lie blah 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 but like you know he doesn't get away with it obviously they don't buy that argument i thought he was gonna like eye gouge roman when he was like pressing him against the wall like basically yeah, sounds- physically threatening him yeah that was a pretty intense moment um did you notice that roman ordered jerry's drink at the end of the episode the martini no, I didn't catch that. Yeah, that's Jerry's drink. Oh, okay. So he's he seriously got some like mommy issues. Oh yeah. Speaking of speaking of mommy issues, their their mother is it their biological mother? Yeah, the one who uh, the, was kind of like organizing at um, Logan's yeah, funeral. Yeah. Her husband, their stepdad, is a complete dink. Yeah. <laughs> he's by far the worst character in the show. He's worse than Hugo. Yeah, they they spend some time making fun of him in season three, and uh, you know they they make it now clear we know that, why. Yeah, they make it clear that he's no match for Logan in terms of intellect or business sense or whatever. But uh, yeah, he becomes a good source of comedy in that finale where they they just have no time for his pitch. Um, did you like the finale overall? Did you find it fit? Yeah. Okay. I think it fit. Yeah, I think it was very smooth. It um it transitioned like I think. The, the shock of Logan's death in episode three um, with still like um, six or seven episodes to go. Mm-hmm. I think uh, it it did provoke a lot of questions because we were like, oh, wow. OK, so Logan's not going to make it to the end. Um, there's going to be a lot of material between that and the ending. Where are we going to go? What's going to happen? Um, but they clearly had a very uh, structured kind of plan. They they brought everyone to that that final point without it feeling rushed or um convenient or anything Mm -hmm. okay um and i asked that because hbo's game of thrones ending was so bad (laughs) yeah i'm glad this one like they really stuck it for this ending i immediately after watching the finale i almost wanted to watch it again just because there's so little so many little things you could have picked up yeah but this, I think this series, um, even though it can be draining sometimes, just following everyone, I think there's some rewatchability in this. Yeah, for sure. And like, um, if especially if you have like a uh, a friend or someone who hasn't watched any of it or fell off in season one, and then you're like, okay, no, I can tell you for sure this has a good ending. It's worth going all the way through. Yeah. You're not going to be disappointed. You know, yeah. that's that's a reason enough to uh, to rewatch yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, were you surprised Kendall Roy did not commit suicide? At the um, I think that would have been a pretty dark ending. I think the the ambiguity is better. I think they like there's a chance that he does, but there's also a chance that he doesn't. Um, of course, you've read the story that Jeremy Strong tried to jump in the river once the cameras were like that. They got the take that they used. No, yeah. really? I his, didn't know that. His method acting kind of took over and he uh, he ran towards the water. He cl- clambered out onto like the pilings by the water and the, the crew were like, no, Jeremy, don't do that. Like we we got the take we needed. Like, So I don't know his body of work as well as I probably should, but is he really method or is he just like trying to win an Emmy here? <laughs> I, all the talk f- uh, 
from the set is that he is pretty method. Like he wouldn't he he wouldn't call it the method, you know, because that's a very specific like school of study. But okay, uh, he would say like you know he would have some airy fairy kind of explanation for what he does. But it is like okay in terms of losing himself in the character, he definitely does. And and Brian Cox has made fun of him for it because Brian Cox is able to just like go on to set look at his lines and be like, okay, I'm going to memorize these. And then we come back and we'll shoot it. And I don't have to like, you know, tell myself a story about who this character is. I just play him. You know, he is, a, he's got yeah, a very, but he's, he's old school like that. Yeah. Though, right. Yeah. It's like Sean Connery and Hunter hunt for red October. It's just, I'm going to show up with my Scottish accent. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't care at all. Um, um, but Brian Cox is a better actor. So hmm. uh, yeah. <laughs> You don't think so? Better than Jeremy Strong? I I mean, he's... No, Jeremy than Sean Connery. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Blackbeard, you want to move on? Yeah. Well, we're staying in the business world a little bit. Um, So this is a a Canadian film, and we don't actually cover Canadian films very often uh, here on the show because, I mean... Let's all admit it. All the Canadian film, Canadian TV doesn't really grab the headlines. Uh, sometimes it can be a little boring, a little kind of try hard, if to to use a, a tired phrase. Um, Just look and look up and down CBC's catalog, mm. and that's the kind of stories we get. Well, finally, you say that because CBC has actually signed a deal for this particular story. Uh, they're going to distribute a three-episode miniseries version of this movie. So they're going to add an extra hour of footage or recover an extra hour of footage and release it as three one-hour episodes, whereas the version that I saw was the two-hour cut that's in movie theaters. That's pretty awesome. That's um, actually, like, the greatest idea they've ever come up with. Yeah. Um, Rather I, than making some, like, TV special original. Yeah. But all of that is a really long way of saying that, like, this is actually one of the best Canadian movies I've seen in a long time. We are in a race to get this thing to market, and we are a year behind. I need a prototype. I'll do it perfectly, or I, I don't do it. Mike, are you familiar with the saying, perfect is the enemy of good? Well, good enough is the enemy of humanity. What do you call it? It's called a Blackberry. Hmm. Try typing with your thumbs. Like Succession, it has a tale to tell about um, like rapid rise in the business world, followed by a very steep fall off. Um, it's, of course, telling the story of Research in Motion slash Blackberry, the one time smartphone king of the world before Apple came on the scene. Um, Did you have got- one? I had one. I had one of them. Yeah, I never got. I never became a fanboy, but I. Oh. Uh, I never I, had one. I kind of missed out on this particular yeah. piece of pop culture. And you know, it, it was famous for having this uh, very tactile keyboard. You know, a full keyboard, a QWERTY keyboard that, um, compared to like the the flip phones of the era, you know, where you had to hit each number a couple of times to to choose your letter when you're typing out a text. Like I I heard about Blackberries. I knew they were like more favored by like business people um, for email. But I thought, oh, you know, for texting, this would be great. You know, I can just hammer out text really quickly. And it was true. Like you got once you got into the rhythm of it, you learned the way it worked. Um, You could get so much faster with typing things out. And so I had one for like two years or whatever and uh, enjoyed it. But then, of course, all the touchscreen based phones were coming on the market and BlackBerry had no competition for it you know they just couldn't that they, they never really developed an app store they never really got on board with um uh with like these sleek glass and plastic 
things that everyone's so used to having these days. And they insisted that the the keyboard-based phone was the way to, it should be. Um, so then this movie charts that development from like when um, Mike Lazaridis, who was a Canadian uh, tech whiz, played by Jay Baruchel, um, he goes with his best friend, who's actually um, played by Matt Johnson, a guy I hadn't really seen in anything before. I guess he, he seems to be more of a comedy guy. Um, and he's the director of the movie, too. So the two of them go to this sort of venture capital kind of firm. It's not really venture capital. They, they're they kind of looking for business financing to get their idea that for this device off the ground. And they meet with Jim Balsillie, who famously went on to be the co-CEO of BlackBerry. So their first pitch goes really badly. Jim Balsillie has no time for them. He thinks that they're stupid geeks and uh, he doesn't understand the product. But when he gets fired for going against his boss's wishes, he's suddenly in need of a job. So he goes back to these nerds that he completely dismissed and he says, hey, I'll help you build your company into something that will actually work. I've got the business sense. You've got the tech sense. Together, we'll be able to build this thing up. And so it, you know, over uh, the movie obviously has to skip forward a couple of times. There's a uh, it touches down in a couple of different eras of BlackBerry success. But you see them go from this, you know, tiny office on the second floor of some laundromat to, you know, their own place in Waterloo in Ontario to having hundreds and thousands of employees and they're making deals and everything and they're flying high. Um, and then it, the iPhone comes along and it all comes apart. <laughs> <laughs> Is it like a satire? Yeah. I mean, it, it feels similar to succession in the sense of like, it's got lots of comedy beats, but it's also got that, the kind of like, dramatic stuff of boardrooms and deal making and, and um, you know, ruthless people out to eat each other's lunch. Because uh, I noticed in the trailer that they made Jim Balzilli look like a crazy madman. Yeah. So they definitely show how like Mike Lazaridis is kind of like he's he's being depicted as this quiet geek guy who just wants to get make the perfect device. And Jim Balsillie is this firebrand guy who's like really quick to anger, played by Glenn Howerton from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Um, got the bald cap going. He's like destroying a phone in a in a phone booth when something's not going his way, He's screaming at everyone, cursing, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, your classic toxic boss, I guess. Your insane marketer who ends up being right about a lot of things, but a lot of hubris, right? Yeah. And you would actually, you would probably really latch on to the part that the NHL has to play in this whole story. Oh, because he tried to ball it by a hockey team and move it to Hamilton? Yeah, he tried that, but he also tried four other times. He tried to buy the yeah, Phoenix Coyotes. He tried yeah. to buy another couple of teams. He was dead set on uh, on moving a hockey team to somewhere else in Canada that didn't have one. And the movie depicts how, or the argument in the movie is how he let his love of hockey and his desire to be an owner completely cloud his business judgment. And he just totally distract him from what was happening at BlackBerry and kind of essentially let Apple catch up to them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he was uh, he was famously stiffed multiple times. Yeah. And he always wanted to put another team in southwestern Ontario. Yeah. So he has there's a couple of scenes where he goes to the NHL offices. He's meeting with Gary Bettman. He's being uh, frosted out by the, uh, the the other owners. And he's uh, 
uh, there's a nice. there's a scene where he like finds out that he's that they're not going to let him buy what uh, the team, and he's like screaming at them, saying, "Saying I'm from Waterloo." Uh, Jay Baruchel is a big hockey guy too, right? So because he did the Goon movies, yeah. So I, I expected that um, in the movie. I'm sure there's more of that footage in the three hour version. Probably, yeah. They might expand that a little bit. Um, so is it a tragic story though at the end like blackberry was like a world leading company and like a lot of big canadian companies it ends up being kaput yeah it is a little tragic you know it's um it shows how certainly mike lazaridis um kind of compromised some of his ideals to get ahead you know he he went from being this perfectionist with the tech to kind of fi- uh, caving and uh, letting some of the manufacturing be done in china um he ends up um, kind of alienating uh, himself from the the other nerds that he built the company with. You know, he he's mean to his best friend, played by Matt Johnson. He, um, you know, he becomes more of like a a shark. Uh, he kind of takes that inspiration from Jim Balsley. Um, so, is this better compared to Jobs? I never saw Jobs, but I saw. Oh, okay. Um, there was. I'm talking about the Fastbender one, not the Ashton Kutcher. Oh, one. that's the one. Okay, yeah, because the Ashton Kutcher <laughs> one's called Jobs. I'm pretty sure the uh, uh, the Fastbender one's called Steve Jobs. I think. Okay. But okay. Um, I think like well, Steve Jobs was directed by David Fincher, so like it would be different. Yeah, but that doesn't mean it should. It's automatically better. Mm. I think this had more laughs than Steve Jobs. So if you're if you're going in there for more of a blend of like comedy and drama, then it's good on that front. Um, I mean, certainly I would not have expected Glenn Howerton and uh, Jay Baruchel to be so good at the dramatic stuff. Like they're both comedy guys. You did, yeah, but see, that's the thing, eh? Like I find comedy guys um, can do drama, but drama people can't do comedy. Mm, yeah, so. I, I think that was one of the biggest downfalls or not downfalls, but one of the biggest setbacks and one of those things that was held against Jim Carrey and Robin Williams to a certain extent was that they were really good dramatic actors, yeah. but everyone was like, make me laugh clown. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it really, really sucked for them because they were never taken seriously. Yeah. There are some that were like a comedic actors and try to go the drama route and it, it doesn't work. Um, but I do find that when really like people who are really into like heavy dramas do comedy, it's, it's an even worse effect in my opinion. It's just, they just never end up being funny at all. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, if you're curious about that transition between like how comedy guys do in the dramatic stuff, it's worth seeing Blackberry just for that. Especially if you're familiar with, with Glenn Howerton, and Jay Baruchel, um, and like the critics are also on board with this thing. Like I think it was it was hitting like ninety eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Like it's a it's a real like runaway hit for a Canadian film. Well, I was gonna say I remember we were talking about Dungeons and Dragons being kind of the sleeper hit. Yeah, I can see BlackBerry getting like a nomination for like best original screenplay or something like that. Right? Yeah, you never know. Yeah, yeah. They love these like tiny films that are about like real life situations and whatnot. Right? So yeah. Do you want to know about a film that's not funny at all? Uh, okay. Was that Fast X? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. This movie was so bad. So, wait. So, but you're in the camp of, like, someone who, you know, you've always... Def- I like the series. You've always defended the series. You, you know, you've always yes. stood up for it, even when it's at its silliest. So, are you saying that, yes. like, this one is bad enough that it's even hard to defend on that normal level? 
it's not even so bad it's funny silly okay it's just stupid if you never would have gotten behind that wheel i'd never be the man i am today and now i am the man who's going to break your family piece by piece like i don't care if i'm spoiling the movie here but we go from cars in space in the previous film which is just silly and just kind of funny if you just think about it to just like street races in Rio de Janeiro. Like, how did we regress to this stage? Now, I get that it's two parts, like, it's a two parter film. Right. And by the way, I hate this trend of having cliffhangers. And I will get to that in the next movie we talk about. Um, but Fast 10 follows the same beats Vin Diesel and his family are under threat, a whole host of characters that they helped with or they helped or worked with come back in some sort of weird fashion. Um, There's a bunch of one-liners that aren't even funny anymore. I don't know what happened to the writing, but none of the jokes land. The car chases aren't nearly as exciting, maybe because they've run out of ideas and maybe because it's not Justin Lin directing. But as a fan of the series, and I say that like unironically, like I really love Tokyo Drift. And I really thought Fast Five was awesome. And I I watched all the movies leading up to Fast Nine. This was unforgivably boring and bad. Wow. It should have ended at Fast Nine. There is... Wow. I don't think there's a single redeeming quality to Fast Ten. It's not exciting. It's not funny. The dialogue is so bad. Like, I couldn't help but laugh at some of the lines out there. Especially there are some lines that, like, they make Charlize Theron and Michelle Rodriguez say. And it is just most god-awful stuff I've ever heard. It's one of those moments where you think about Harrison Ford where you're like, George, you can write this shit, but you can't say it. (laughs) Yeah. This is blistering criticism, though. I'm really surprised. I thought you were going to come here and... uh, and you know, go to bat for it, considering no, I, that it was, uh, and you know, you know what? Of- I, I went in with high hopes because I saw some of the critics reviews. Right. And they're like, yeah, it's the same. You know, it's it's silly, but it's fun. And I was like, all right, you know what? I'm prepared. But I came out of this thinking like this is worse than the second Fast and the Furious movie, because at least that had a bit of a, more of a plot. You know, I, I think this was easily the worst of the films since it became like a superhero a faux superhero. superhero, yeah, because it's definitely that. Uh, do you think uh, that Justin Lin realized that partway through and that's why he quit in the middle of production? I don't know why he quit. I, I don't blame him. Um, the thing about this movie is that Fast and the Furious has a huge ensemble cast. Like ever since they introduced Statham, The Rock, John Cena, Charlize Theron. And the problem is you have to somehow find screen time for all these people. So their idea of doing it is to split everyone up into five different plot lines. The problem is all none of those five plot lines are remotely interesting. John Cena spends the entire film hanging out with the 12-year-old Yeah, I heard kid, about that. Yeah. Driving along a highway doing absolutely fuck all. <laughs> <laughs> he has one action sequence inside a house and he appears out of nowhere as, like as well. And I just didn't understand. Like it's the the plot lines are so bad. I didn't care what was going on. At some point, I dozed off and I kind of lost track of the plot. But I didn't really care anyway because this movie solves absolutely nothing. Um, I will say though, if there is one reason to see it, 
is to see Jason Momoa's performance. It is, for lack of a better word, weird. It is very similar to how I saw Jared Leto in House of Gucci, where he was doing like a completely different thing than everyone else. Right. I, in my opinion, I thought he was doing like a version of a Joker. Like he was cross-dressing. There's some queer coding in there. He's like a pure psychopath. He's not in it to kill anyone. He just wants to torture people. That's just his MO. Okay. And so you're like, okay, so I get what you're saying here. You're saying that he's not going to kill every main characters because it's against his code, but he's just going to make life really, really miserable for them. So please stay and watch for two and a half hours. <laughs> and so at that point, you're just like, okay, what's the point then? You know, like if he's not going to go for the kill, well, he's going to be the one who dies yeah. anyway. So what the yeah. hell are you watching here? And so do, after all of that, like, you know, they, they establish that there's no real narrative stakes and that he... Uh, he gets all of this like scenery to chew and he can like, you know, do whatever he wants and just have the time of his life on set. Um, are they going to do that thing that they do with all uh, Fast and the Furious villains where they find some uh, roundabout way of getting him to become part of the family at the end? I'm sure I'm not so sure that will happen, Jason Momoa, but I'm sure that'll happen with at least one character, I guess. The thing with Fast and the Furious is like one of their trademarks is, is retconning in the past now. We saw that when they brought back Han. Yes. They bring back another character from the dead, which is like completely stupid and surprising. More stupid than surprising, I should say. And at this point, you're just like, I don't care anymore because nobody stays dead. And past history means nothing because you just retcon everything. Paul Walker shows up in like archival footage and that's how they introduce Jason Momoa's oh, character. Yeah. And I hate it when when films do that. It's like they're trying to create stakes that are never there in the first place. Yeah. And that's what um, I mean, it started to get on my nerves with the last one. And like I, you know, granted, the last one had bigger action scenes. It had wilder stuff um, like the space car and the the, yeah, the space car truck and stuff, yeah. um, all of those things. But, you know, I I do have a ceiling where like you mm. you have to be you have to be authentic with the characters to a point you have to allow them to die. You have to have some stakes. You can't uh, have them be a villain and then just fold them in with the family. Like the whole idea that Jason Statham and, um, uh, or that, uh, what, what's his character's name in this? Um, Shaw Shaw, the whole idea that Shaw and Han can be friends after like they tried killing each other, movies and movies ago and that you know every it's just water under the bridge i mean that feels that's just such an insult to the intelligence of you know admittedly you're not supposed to think too hard about these movies but you do have to think to a certain point because if you don't care about the characters at all or what happens to them then what's the point you'll be happy to hear that han and shaw fight again and then team up again in this movie right so (laughs) just (laughs) and get this han actually goes to shaw and knocks on his door, and that's how they get into a fight. Literally. Mm, fun. Okay. <laughs> and it's, I'm sorry. It's just really stupid. I, there's just little piece, bits and pieces of everything in there. There's a part where Han eats, like, a muffin that's supposedly stuffed with either weed or mushrooms. It's probably shrooms. And he hallucinates for a second, but it's like a 30-second scene, and nothing really comes of it. It's not even that funny. It's just, it's so weird. And guess what? Pete Davidson's in the scene, so you already know that's bad. 
Uh, it was just so what uh, so at the end of all of that like obviously they're they're gonna have a cliffhanger they're going to lead into what they're saying is the last one of these saga films but oh my god they so will... i went on wikipedia after the movie because i was like what else please tell me there's no more i heard and i read somewhere that they might split part two into another two parts so fast 10 could be a three-part film that's not and that's not fair I'm... And I nearly just threw up in my mouth. <laughs> I was like, I, I can't take this anymore. Like for an action film, it really bored me. And I think that's the worst criticism you can make of an action. Yes. Film. Yeah. If you can't even lose yourself in the the stupidity or the, not the stupidity, but like if you can't lose yourself in the, the enter, the pure entertainment of cars smashing into each other, then something has gone wrong and yeah i mean like the car chasing that opens the movie is through uh paris and at the entire time i'm thinking like wow mission impossible does it a hundred times better than this yeah <laughs> and it's like how do you go from cars in space to a street race through rio and a street race through paris like come on come on let's step up your game here like so you mean that there was a part in the trailer where like dom like smashes two helicopters together because he attaches them to with like a cable to his car like was that kind of underwhelming i thought it was really underwhelming um because it got to the point where like the the car before up to that point had flipped like 20 times it's been crushed it's been scraped it's been t-boned a bunch of times and bean diesel comes out just immaculate and oily yeah, yeah with his shiny bald head yeah and at that point it's just like and you know what he's done the same stunt with the cars and helicopters previously oh and the uh, in the previous fast and furious and i think there was one uh i think it was the one that featured the rock Ho- shaw and hobbs I think. Oh, okay that, that was another one that had cars and helicopters right and it, it's like you've seen the same stunts over and over again so mm. there's nothing new so two questions then um what what okay. do, what do oh, you God. think <laughs> was it bad enough that you will not close out the series and watch the, the the following films because like as a fan do you owe it to yourself to see them all i will go see it but only because if i have nothing else to do and there's no other films i want to see and I have enough scene points for a free ticket. Okay. Then right. I will go see it. Okay. Um, second question. What do you make of The Rock now turning to this franchise after swearing off of it and, and trying to use it to revitalize his star power after the failure of Black Adam? I'm sorry. The Rock is a fucking joke to me. Now. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. Like, he can't make a good film. There's nothing remotely interesting about any of his films these days. Um, I read that somewhere that he's basically forced a live action Moana into production. Sounded like it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, he, he says he's buried the hatchet with, with uh, Vin Diesel. I think the rock is just finding, trying to find another IP to poach another IP to like raise his boat. Um, I think it's funny that he refuses to believe black Adam was a colossal failure. And and the DC in general, like it's not entirely his fault, but let's just say Black Adam was not like a standout film. No, but he was tied together. He spent so much time hyping it. And then even after it finally came out and, you know, we both saw it. It wasn't terrible, but it was also just it wasn't the kind of it, it didn't live up to the sort of franchise building 
power that he claimed the character was capable of. And then the Shazam sequel just totally face planted right after it. And those two characters are supposed to be in the like, you know, famously at odds. So there's just nothing left in that side of the dc universe did you uh did you see fury of the gods no i just i couldn't i couldn't bring myself to do it it seemed it seemed like zachary levi was begging people to go to see it and i just i couldn't do it (laughs) okay so between this and are you gonna see fast 10 maybe on streaming okay so between uh fury of the gods and fast 10 notice how gal gadot's career has gone and i'll just leave it at that Uh. (laughs) like she went from leading lady to like essentially a side piece and yeah it's just it's kind of hilarious how far she's fallen too um based on the disastrous wonder woman 1984 <laughs> okay which i think was worse than black adam yeah that was worse than black adam yeah for sure yeah for sure so it, it's just funny like the rock to me i think hobbs out of all the characters he's played recently hobbs might be his best character mm. so there might be a chance he revives his franchise but I'm sorry, the film sucks. Like, <laughs> even if you're the best part of a shitty film, it's still a shitty film. Yeah. And it's really hard to separate yourself from that. As hard as he tries, this is Vin Diesel's franchise. This is not his franchise. If he wants to do a Hobbs thing, he has to do a Hobbs and Shaw too. Like him, just him and Statham. Yeah. Right? So um, I, I think there's a part of him that wants to hijack this this IP, but I don't think it's going to happen. And a part of me also thinks, though, that Fast and Furious needs Hobbs to be interesting. Yeah, yeah. I uh, It's been an interesting time watching this. Uh, well, it's kind of like, you know, in a, to, to overuse the metaphor, it's like a rise and fall, kind of what? like BlackBerry, you know? Yeah. Like this, this, they had this moment where they, like, you know, they were making a billion dollars easy for Universal on every release. And I'm sure this one's doing well financially, but, like, it just feels like it's they, the fans are falling away from it now. Also, have you noticed that we're we're kind of shifting like our expectations of what an action star is these days. Like we were, went from like a bunch of like beefcakes in the nineties yeah, to like beefcakes now. <laughs> and then we're moving back to like Tom Cruise. Yeah. Who's like not a beefcake. No. It's kind of interesting how that's happened. Right. Like even Daniel Craig, I, to me is an action star and he's not a beefcake. Right. The, the days of like Schwarzenegger, Stallone, um, Diesel, The Rock, I, I think we're starting to like fade a little bit. Like we're, we're starting to move away from like the oiled up muscle men action hero. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, because like even if you look at, okay, the TV show Jack Ryan, I know it's not huge, but John Krasinski is an action hero now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like Chris Pratt, not really a beefcake, but like nevertheless an action hero and, and not, not like... Not like super masculine like them. He's kind of like a dumb kind of guy sometimes. And and Tom Cruise is like immortal. So I I think I just thought it was kind of interesting that we, our expectations of what it action superstar looks like has kind of changed. Yeah, it's not enough for it just to be the guy. There's got to be some character, or there has to be some. Like Schwarzenegger can Schwarzenegger can walk into or in the '90s Schwarzenegger could walk into any movie and you'd be like, "That's a Schwarzenegger movie. I'm going to watch it because it's Schwarzenegger. I don't care who he's playing." Um, but now, like Schwarzenegger does this big uh, or like relatively big uh, show on Netflix called Fubar. It sucks. No, nobody's paying any attention to it. And 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 look at Keanu Reeves. Like that guy is not a beefcake, but he is a legit action star. Yeah. Yeah. 
he like John Wick is is doing gangbusters. So yeah, and apparently we're gonna get a fifth one. Yeah. Oh my God, <laughs> Jesus. Uh, anyway, we should move on to better things. Yeah. So uh, tell me about Spider Verse because I uh, regret regretfully have not seen it yet, but it's been I've been counting down for it. Miles, being Spider Man is a sacrifice. You have a choice between saving one person and saving every world. <gasps> Send me home. I can't do that. I can do both! Spider-Man always... Not always. What about Uncle Ben? If not for Uncle Ben, most of us wouldn't be here. So, without spoiling too much, you know how... Um, Spider into the Spider Verse ends where uh, Gwen Stacy comes back, yeah, and says hi, Miles. Yeah. Okay, so into the Spider Verse pretty much picks up uh, at that point. Okay, um, there's a there's a bit of a prologue which is really great because it sets up Gwen Stacy as one of the main characters. In fact, I would argue she's the main character in this film because so much of it is from her POV. Okay, but anyway, so it kind of takes uh, picks up where it leaves off. And the supervillain this time is called the Spot, and it's this guy who can tr- uh, move and absorb power from different Spider Verses, and and okay. it's it, it's a brilliant gag because he opens up these like black holes and he jumps through them, and yeah. if you think about it, literally he's a plot hole. And so, yeah, it's really clever because you've got this movie where they're jumping around from Spider-Verse to Spider-Verse, setting up this huge, gigantic payoff in, in the movie. And it just makes a lot of sense. He disappears in the middle part of it, but you know what he's up to and you know he returns. And then when he does return, you're like, oh, my God, the, the shit just got real. And that to me. That, that's yeah. impressive. I mean, I remember I remember the spot as a character on like the old animated show. And, and he's hilarious. And he was, yeah, he was, he was always like, uh, in that show, he was depicted as being a bit of yeah. a loser who was kind of like a second rate villain who, you know, Spider-Man didn't really take him seriously because he was pretty easy to defeat. And he, but he just had this goofy power that allowed him to pop up in different places with the power, with the holes that he pulls off his, his costume. Um, kind of like uh, David Dalsmashian's character in the Suicide Squad. Yeah. Polka Dot uh, Man. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the, yeah, it's interesting that they've decided to scale him up to be a more formidable villain. And, this time. and that's the sign you have a really successful villain when you sit back and you go, holy shit, he just showed up. It's kind of like whenever the Joker shows up in a Batman film. Right. You're like, oh my God, it's the Joker. Shit's going to get real. Right, right. Right. There's always that nemesis for Spider-Man. It's always kind of um, hard to say because he's had so many great villains. But so far in this series, in this franchise, the dot has really, I think, elevated himself into one of his his nemesis, basically. And I think that's a really impressive feat. It's kind of like kicking Guardians yeah. of the Galaxy into the mainstream. It's just impressive. Um, mm, but yeah. as you would expect, um, the art is really great. The voice acting is really great. Hits all the emotional beats um, of a story of a, a, a story with a lot of uh, characters that go through their own emotional arcs. So Gwen Stacy, Miles Morales, but also I think his parents and some of the um, other characters in the in the that show up. Right. Um, they don't show up for a lot, but you know there's a lot of backstory behind them. 
And so basically in the pursuit of keeping all these Spider-Verses under control and defeating the Dot, um, Miles Morales joins uh, this group of Spider-Men from all sorts of different universes. And they're led by Spider-Man 2099, uh, voiced by Oscar Isaac, who does a really great job. Um, I won't say any more, but there are two things I should note. One, it is, in my opinion, overly long. It is too long. It's two and two hours and 20 minutes. And because it's Spider-Man, because there's a lot of fan service that's needed, and it's granted it's good fan service, I, I do think it kind of drags a little, though. Oh, okay. Um, there's a part where he goes to, like, the Spider-Man, Spider-Verse headquarters. Yeah. And it's really cool how they tie in everything. And they literally tie in everything. Um, it's really impressive. Um, the other thing is, too, so... Do you know that this is the first movie of two parts? Yeah, they announced them both at the same time. Uh, last year, the year before, I think, like 2022. Okay. Yeah. So the auditorium I was in, I would say the majority of the people did not know oh. it was the first of two parts. So when it ended on a cliffhanger, they were audible, like, what the fucks? Or like horseshit <laughs> and, and i actually go online and like apparently a lot of people were pissed off that it ended on a cliffhanger because they didn't realize it and i was like really you didn't realize i guess we're more in tune with like movies and stuff yeah so i suppose I knew beforehand yeah so i i knew there was a chance that it would end on a, on an unresolved storyline but it really ends on a cliffhanger and um i think people were really pissed off because you can read it as two ways one people don't like being teased um especially in that sense and two because i think i think it was so good that people just wanted to see the conclusion yeah i mean if you're involved enough with the characters that you get angry when you don't find out what happens to them then that yeah. you know it is a, it's like a double-edged sword it means that you have you've created characters that are resonating with people but it also means that you risk pissing people off when you tell correct. them you have to wait like a year or more to find out what the resolution is um, correct and it's kind of like it's a bit like tv in that sense like if you have a an absolute like uh killer cliffhanger mm -hmm. season finale kind of thing and then you're like haha you have to wait mm -hmm. yeah, you yeah. know i mean i think people are more used to that happening in tv but when it happens in a movie it can be polarizing yeah, like for sure you know we we all remember the cliffhanger at the end of uh, the matrix revolutions and you know that the there are people i think well you've also made the argument that the matrix revolutions and the matrix or no the matrix reloaded and the matrix revolutions are all one film yeah, and yeah. i can i can kind of buy that so you know? it, it's kind of the same thing with dune where like i i can't possibly give you a proper rating on the first part if i haven't seen the second part because i see mm. it as one film right um, this i can see i can do the similar thing with this except i actually really enjoy the film I don't think I enjoyed it as much as the first one. This one just had too much going on, but it is, I think, a shoe in to to at least be nominated for best animated feature. It's it's really that good. Mm, yeah. Did the first one win best animated feature? I can't remember. I think it did. Yeah. Okay. If yeah. not, then I mean, that's should. a travesty. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so much work goes into these things. Though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's it's great. I really highly recommend you go see it as soon as you can. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, the well, sticking in the MCU then, um, obviously Guardians 3 has been out for a while. Um, you mentioned it a little bit earlier with in the context of like, you know, the feat that James Gunn kind of accomplished back when 2014, when he took this 
team of characters that nobody really knew outside of co- the comics world and uh, made them into the these successful movie characters. Um, and so, like, you know, the third one came out a, few, a month and a half or so ago, and um, I saw it at the time, and I was thinking to myself, like, okay, like, these are the, this is the last group of characters who needed some sort of resolution after the events of Endgame. Um, and they get it here, you know, they... They they leave a lot of the characters off, and you know they don't um, they don't say like we'll never see them again. But they also say that it's clear from what James Gunn has said that he doesn't want to make any more, and Dave Batista doesn't want to play Drax anymore. And he so doesn't. A few no no, and mm. uh, which is fine. And like there's other char- there's other actors in the in the group who are you know moving on to other things too. So I just couldn't shake this feeling when I watched Guardians three about. You know, maybe I'm done with the MCU now. Like, I don't really have much of a reason to continue watching. I haven't been plugged in with the shows. I haven't, um, I you know, I haven't liked a lot of the Phase Six or whatever the hell we're on now. Like, the Doctor Strange sequel was no fun. It had fun parts, fun parts, but the Thor Four also fun. Thor Four was bad. Yeah, I didn't like, like it. that. You know, Ant Man Quantum Mania was pretty bad. Like, I've just been having a a bad time. <laughs> with these things recently and but guardians 3 was great because it was of a piece with all the ones that came before and those characters work really well uh, under james gunn's leadership we'll all fly away together one last time into the forever that beautiful sky you know how we talked about how the characters never die in fast and furious so knowing that this was the final entry in James Gunn's Guardians of the Galaxy and knowing that this was definitely the last film for this crew in particular, um, I did expect something dramatic to happen. Yeah. So when some, when some of the characters die on screen, I actually believed it. So, and there were two instances where that happened, right? So one was Rocket Raccoon um, on the table and the other one was Peter Quill. And I totally bought that death scene hook, line, and sinker. And then they came back and I was like, you know what? Had I not known that this was the last movie of this trilogy, I would have been so pissed. And it wouldn't have it wouldn't have had the same effect because I knew that they would come back in some sort of form in the next film. But there is no next film. So I guess it's one of those times where like, if you know this is a one-off or if you know this is the last film in the series, that's when a death fake out actually works. There, there's not the finality of the character being dead, but there's the finality of this team and that, you know, this uh, the, the leadership of that director or that writer um, that's going to that's gonna come to an end. And, you know, they, they might, like Chris Pratt might reprise the role under a different, filmmaker for example a couple years down the road but it won't be it'll be different from what james gunn has done it might be written slightly differently there'll be a different quality to the humor whatever it is um and that's fine you know i don't particularly care but i also you know it was james gunn's version of these characters that i uh attach myself to so i you know i don't have a special need to see them anymore after this one did you find the movie kind of creepy yeah, there's lots of like body horror stuff in there, like the the fleshy planet and the um, you know, the stuff, the 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 animal cruelty stuff with the high evolutionary villain guy. The uh 
the bunny the bunny was the yeah there were some like sid's toys in the first toy story type quality to it it was uh that's that that was definitely the high evolutionary is a villain he's a lot creepier when he's doing stuff to animals than in any of his confrontations with the guardians like it felt like they kicked his ass pretty handily so yeah true but i mean it is one against five or six, whatever it is. So, I suppose. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's difficult. There was just so many characters who said, oh, you're going to try to take on the high evolutionary. No one could beat that guy. He's like a god. And then turns out he wasn't much of a god. It's interesting to me that at the beginning, Peter Quill and Gomorra were like the two co-leads, sort of, sort of, so to speak. Yeah. Because they were like the main couple and everything. And then by the end of the series, I cared the least about Gomorra. Mm, yeah. Well, they'd sort of, they'd kind of like concluded her story with uh, Endgame, War. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah so. fair enough. And she's supposedly a different character. But yeah, um, I agree. Um, a lot of the characters and, and part of the appeal of this entire trilogy is that the side characters are always a lot more interesting than they should be. But uh, So um, then thinking about like the Marvel movies in general, though, like are there any characters or team ups right now that you're actually excited to see more from or... Are you just sort of watching because you've invested so much time in the in the stories? Well, that's the thing, right? There's no Iron Man Captain America combo right now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. There, there's none. I mean, there are characters that I find interesting, um, but they don't have a good foil. Like I, I thought Namor was really great, but I don't think um the new Black Panther is particularly interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard to say like what other movies are out there Thor and Jane no chemistry at all. Um The Wasp I can't stand. <laughs> I just I, I don't think she's very interesting. No. Maybe Cassie and Ant-Man but that's a different kind of relationship. That's like a father-daughter thing. It's not not so much like an equal footing team up type thing. So, I don't know. But uh, I will have to say, though, I think I enjoyed Volume 3 more than Volume 2 for Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, I'd agree with that, actually. Yeah, I think it's um, like the ego stuff with Kurt Russell was uh, was interesting, but it wasn't as creepy as the high evolutionary. It wasn't uh, like I didn't feel as um, moved by it um, because it, like ego's plan in the second one was just like, let's cover all the planets I've been on with blue goo and then Peter Quill unlocks his like celestial power and he's like, okay, I'm going to stop you now. Um, yeah. Um, I think that we do visit more like interesting worlds in volume three. And that's always been the bigger appeal for guardians of the galaxy for me because they're not stuck on earth. Yes. Yeah. Where a, a large part of ego story is what happens on earth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, but I, uh, I don't know if I'm getting tired of the MCU. Like, I mean, you probably have more superhero fatigue than me. Like, I'm not... I did get superhero fatigue a long time ago. I just... It didn't... It hasn't hit the point where I just don't want to watch the movies. Um, I don't know. Maybe because I'm a sucker for superhero films. So I keep taking the bait. I'm not a. I'm not totally ruling out all superhero movies. Like, I, I love the Matt Reeves Batman stuff right now. Um, Actually, speaking of combos, I would say the best cop combo is captain falcon <laughs> okay <laughs> you know captain falcon and the winter yeah. soldier <laughs> um but even then that to me is it's it's like b or c list it's not a list like tony stark yeah and, and i mean they've they've uh, talked about uh, making brie larson's character the the new leader of the avengers but that's you know yeah they they have to do so much 
stuff between now and then with like shows she's and- also yeah she's also like not very popular off screen you know what i mean mm. Yeah, like there's a certain segment of the internet crowd that really does not like. I her. don't really see like I'm fine with her as a uh, you know if they decide to put her forward as a leader, I'd be fine with it. I just um, I have not like to me from a marketing standpoint, Spider Man's the obvious leader, mm. but he shouldn't be. Yeah, because he's supposed to be like younger and less experienced. But you know. yeah, yeah. So I don't know how they're gonna do it. I am interested to see the Marvels. I'm sort of intrigued by that is that a show or a movie i can't even tell anymore it's a movie it's a movie but the character that is introduced in marvels miss marvel she's She's from one of the shows uh, yeah 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 yeah, exactly and monica rambo is obviously from wandavision but but i'm just yeah i'm just curious to see where all that goes i mean it's hard to say like they really caught lightning in a bottle with Robert Downey Jr. and Chris Evans. And and I think it's really, really hard to replicate that. And I don't see Marvel having the same kind of success as they previously had. It's going to take a huge shift, like really something out of the blue that catches us off guard. That's going to revive the, the franchise to what it was before. I mean, if you're James Gunn, you're salivating because this is DC's chance to overtake them. Yeah, and like, but I don't trust James Gunn. Well, I mean, there's still a lot of stuff that they have to do there to with this whole rebirth. But I'm more interested in what DC is doing because they've said, "All right, we're pumping the brakes on the continuity. We're making a clean break. We're just redoing everything." And I know that Marvel's got a good thing going and that they don't necessarily need to do the same thing. They don't have to cut everything off and start again. But I would be kind of interested to see what they would do if they did that, you know? Um, yeah, fair so. enough. Um, I, I think DC's vision should be run by Matt Reeves. I think his dark and gloomy vision should be the overarching uh, theme and feel of the DC universe. Because DC Comics has always been darker. They have been darker, and I agree with you that like uh, he, what he's doing with Batman is fantastic, and it's very much on brand for the character. It's it's good to see the character like that, but I don't agree that Superman should be in that same tone because we've because we got that tone. Like Zack Snyder's had a lot of kicks at the can at, at making the dark <laughs> Superman. I uh, think I want I want a very bright and poppy, colorful. Christopher Reeve esque Superman for the next Superman. I think it should be bright and hopeful and and uh, super like uh, like very inspiring. Not this kind of like oh I'm an alien from another planet and my adoptive dad told me that I can't use my powers and I'm gonna you know everything's gonna be shot like it's in a dark alley and blah blah blah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, fine. Yeah, okay, I can see your point. I, I do like I do like Henry Cavill as Superman a lot. I would be so. fine with Henry Cavill r- taking the character back at some point. I just I I just need I need a break. I need a uh, like I need the Christopher Reeve G G Warlockers type Superman on screen again. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> well, what kind of Wonder Woman do you want then? Again, like a like a bright and happy Wonder Woman, and not like oh you know my boyfriend has been brought back from the dead, and I'm stuffed his soul into another man's body yeah. kind of stuff like that was some i'm like five thousand years old but i've only had one boyfriend, yeah there's some and it was a briefling and yeah there's some weird stuff on the go that last time around that <laughs> that i'm still wrestling with okay fair enough so so batman's the only one who's allowed to be in this dark underworld yeah because he, he's the contrast right he's like you know 
you put him up against Superman or up against Wonder Woman, and he's like the the emo kid in the corner. And he's it's funnier that way when you see him in a contrast with the the inspiring ones. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Speaking of DC, uh, have you seen the Harley Quinn cartoon show? I've seen, seen lots of clips from it, but I've never watched a full episode. Oh, okay, okay, uh, watch it. It's hilarious. I've seen, I've heard lots of good <laughs> things. Like it's, it's really like it's definitely embracing the more adult side of the character and all of that. Yeah, and also just because they point out everything that's ridiculous about superhero movies and DC, and their version of Batman is just as dark, but he's like caught in this world that's really. Uh, humorous and silly <laughs> and it's kind of funny to see that happen. yeah that's what i mean like you so, gotta have batman just kind of grumbling so, while everyone else is being really cartoony around him so you saying we need a cheery superman a cheery wonder woman plus matt reeves batman it's like this image that goes yeah yeah, yeah for sure well there's so many other things to occupy our attention over the coming months like we've got uh the in the new indie sequel, which is apparently not great. I don't know. <laughs> um, Does that surprise you? I, no, not really. But I yeah, I exactly. had some hope. I had hope that it would be good um, for his last time out. And like Oppenheimer's coming out, Barbie. Um, there's so many. I don't know how I feel about Barbie. Have you seen the trailer? I have seen the trailer. It's so weird and like yeah, it is neon. Weird. I, I just um, it's either going to be really good or really bad in my opinion. But it's Greta Gerwig. I, I believe in Greta Gerwig. So. Okay, all right. Oppenheimer should be good. Um, yeah, I think Barbie will be very subversive. I think that's where it will it will get, uh, it'll really get good. Is is not just like doing a straight up adaptation of the character, but like showing how they can subvert it and kind of like critique the, the, the toys a little bit. And you know what else is coming up in August? The Meg 2, The Trench. Uh, Big Sharks. I was going to say Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> See, we're, we're both getting like uh, guilty pleasure movies in August. <laughs> Definitely not guilty about my fandom for Ninja Turtles. <laughs> <laughs> no guilt at all. <laughs> okay, just straight up pleasure then. Yes. Lots of pleasure. <laughs> so, yes. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Robert Snow in Toronto. And my name is Jason Chen in Vancouver. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. The Extra Buttery Podcast is written, recorded, and produced by Jason Chen and Robert Snow. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to rate and subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. And remember, popcorn is always better with extra butter.